Welcome to Cleft Talk, bringing you discussion on the topics that adults affected by cleft lip and or cleft palate have told us matter to them. Brought to you by the Cleft Lip and Palate Association as part of CLEFA's Adult Services Programme. Proudly funded by the VTCT Foundation. You're listening to Cleft Talk with Kenny Ardwin and Nikki Davis. My name is Nikki Davis and I'm the Adult Services Officer at Clapper. Together with my colleague Kenny, we make up the Clapper's Adult Service Delivery Team. Welcome to the latest Clef Talk panel discussion brought to you by Clapper's Adult Services Project, proudly supported by the VCTC Foundation. Clef Talk is your opportunity to learn more about the topics that adults born with a clef across the UK told us that are important to them through the Adult Survey and Roadshow. We hope that you find these panel discussions both entertaining and informative. Remember that you can keep up with the Adult Services Project online, including watching this and other panel discussions again at www.clapper.com slash Adult Services Project. You can also join this conversation on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash groups slash Clapper Adults. Today on the programme, we are discussing one of the most major procedures associated with care, jaw surgery, also known as orphanatic surgery. Jaw surgery can make a big difference to how you look and how your jaws work to help you eat in, but the treatment and surgery involved is significant, meaning this is a big decision to make. Today, we hope to shed some light on this treatment so that if you're faced with a decision to make, you feel well informed and have the facts you need to help you ask the right questions to help you make that right decision. It is our pleasure to welcome our panel guests, Canwell, Rachel, Arthur and Kareen. Before we get into the discussion, can you please briefly tell us a bit about yourselves and your background? Uh, hi, my <laughs> name is Karine Edsm and I'm one of four clinical psychologists in the Addenbrooke's team. We regional service, so we, uh, we work and cover quite, um, quite a sector. Um, my background, so I've been with the CLEF team for two years and a bit, and my background is more in um, traumatic family relationship and safeguarding. Um, but yeah. Uh, so my name is Rachel Willis, I'm an orthodontic consultant based here at Addenbrookes and I work predominantly for the cleft lip and palate service. Um, so in my training I've qualified as an orthodontist and then gone on to do some further training uh, in conditions and, and supporting patients with uh, cleft in, for instance. Um, and uh, it's something that I'm very passionate about so I love, love to do, we're a brilliant team here. Okay. So I'm Kamal Raj Moore, I'm a cleft surgeon. I've trained in the whole remit of cleft surgery from treating the babies all the way through into adulthood. And then in particular, because I'm from a maxillofacial background, I do a lot of bony surgery. So that means the jaw surgery, things around teeth, bone grafts, that sort of thing. And I've been at Addenbrooke's now for six years. So it's, it's quite a while. <laughs> yes. Oh, brilliant. So I'm Atha Sayed. Um, I'm actually a member of the ARC. Just the Yaga Represent Committee for Clapper. Um, I had my jaw surgery back in July of this year, uh, performed at Guy's Hospital. And in terms of background, I'm actually an auditor who worked for a pharmaceutical company based in Cambridgeshire. Mm, oh, brilliant. Thank you. Welcome to you all. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start with our first question. This is to Canwell. 
Um, can you start by giving us an overview of what jaw surgery is and who might jaw surgery be considered for? Okay, so what we call jaw surgery or orthognathic surgery is a treatment for moving the jaws into a different position. Um, and it's not exclusive to cleft. In fact, mm -hmm. the, the majority of the patients who will have jaw surgery don't have a cleft. However, what we find that in patients who have had cleft, they will often have a smaller upper jaw, um, which means that they have a disparity or a difference between their top and bottom teeth. So we would hope in what we would call a standard occlusion or the type of occlusion where the teeth meet together, that they would meet top teeth in front of the bottom teeth. Sometimes what we find in cleft patients, it's the other way around. So the top teeth are behind the bottom teeth. That's not necessarily a problem. You know, you can function perfectly well. You can speak, you can eat. It depends on how much difference there is. But in addition to that, if you've got a small top jaw, it may affect appearance. And this is something that quite a few patients will come in and say, I don't like my profile. Mm -hmm. And that then starts the conversation about what is it that they don't like about their profile and what's the underlying cause of that. So they may come in and say, I don't like my nose. And then mm -hmm. when we explore a bit further and look at it, we find that actually it's because their top jaw is a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. There are other variations. So sometimes you can have a small bottom jaw. Sometimes you can have a big bottom jaw. So, but for the majority of patients with cleft, it's mm -hmm. around having a small top jaw. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of where, who we'd consider it for. And then um, what, is, what is the benefit of having um, jaw surgery? So the first thing I'd say is it's elective, yeah. which means that it's absolutely on patient choice. You know, if a patient comes to me, if they're not saying they're interested or that they're not defining a problem that I think, yeah, that's something we can change. If they come to me and say, I'm really, really happy and I can see their teeth are the wrong way around or that they've got a, a profile which shows me that they might have a small top, top job, they're happy. I'm not going to give mm. them any treatment. I'm not going to say to them you yeah. need treatment, they're happy. So it's a very elective sort of um, procedure. But I will get patients coming in saying they can't chew or they can't bite. Mm -hmm. So they'll bite a sandwich and the filling will get left behind. And they don't like eating in public. Or they may struggle somewhat with their speech, with the placement of where they put their tongue. So they feel that they've got a little bit of a lisp. And then the final thing we mentioned already is there may be something around their appearance that mm -hmm. they're not happy with, that they feel slightly uncomfortable with. And actually, one of the questions I will ask is, how do you feel about having photographs taken? Mm -hmm. How do you feel about profile photographs? And that can often give us a clue re of really what it is that they think about themselves in that yeah. context. Yeah. And what, um, what age do you have to, have to be to um, yeah, consider having jaw surgery and get it done? So, adult. Um, but I would always say I would want my patient to have finished growing yeah. by the point of surgery. The treatment in the run-up, which I'm sure we'll go through, mm -hmm. takes a few years. Yeah. But the, at the point of surgery, I want them to have finished growing. Mm -hmm. So usually for boys, that's a minimum of 18. For girls, you can get away with a little bit younger, but we usually say around 18. Yeah. Again, it can be tweaked slightly depending on the surgery. But if we're correcting the teeth being the wrong way round, we need that bottom jaw, the lower jaw, to stop growing. Mm. Unfortunately, it's probably the last bone to stop <laughs> growing. So you can have the surgery and then grow out of it. So we don't want that to happen. Mm. In terms of upper age limits, um, 
I probably wouldn't go beyond 50s, but mm. I would suggest that recovery and healing is a lot easier earlier. Yeah. So if it was something you were going to consider, the sooner you do it, mm. the better. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Now, obviously, it is quite a big thing to consider, you know, as you're saying, kind of what's involved. Um, in the surgery itself. Coming to you for this next question, Rachel, um, at what point in your care, obviously we've discussed the point at which the treatment mm. would happen, mm -hmm. but at what point in your care might you realise that you could be a candidate for this surgery? So we are, as, as orthodontists and, and surgeons within the cleft team, I suppose we're monitoring, monitoring patients from infancy. So there might be some patients that actually their parents notice a discrepancy in their bite or their jaw relationship when they're little. And we talk about to them that there are things that can be done later to change it. So they may grow up having had it talked about as something that they could have or, or, or should be, or maybe that's part of their treatment. Um, that's not the case for everybody. Um, usually around the age of about 15, when you've got most of your adult teeth, we can have a, a pretty good idea of if you have the type of bite or difference in your tooth position that might warrant correction with a, a, a jaw procedure. Um, so at that stage we start to talk about it for patients who might actually benefit from that type of treatment. At that point in time it's very much this is something you could consider, you don't have to do it um, and, and just start exploring perhaps with the help mm -hmm. of, of the rest of the team and Kareen what, what it might involve and if somebody's interested in it. If you if your teeth are close together sometimes we can manage just with braces so we have a good idea around the age of about 15 if that's possible or not. Excellent. And obviously we've spoken a fair bit about upper and, and kind of lower age limits yeah. for, for having this treatment. Um, but if it is considered to be an option for somebody, um, and obviously they speak mm -hmm. with yourself, Karina, mm -hmm. as well at that point, um, at what point would you normally expect someone to be making that decision? Most youngsters would do it around, you know, once they, it's mentioned to them that that could be a possibility and they are, you know, they've had previous surgery, they are in the middle of their pathway, so they tend to consider it then. Um, but actually, some of them are, 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 at that point in time, are not interested. It's not the right thing for them. It's, they have other things to do. They might be really fed up with, um, with having had so much treatment and surgeries that they want to break and they might go back to it later. So in terms of, you know, the considering it, I would say that that's um, around age 15 for the majority yeah. and then uh, later for the ones who uh, maybe that wasn't mentioned to them or maybe that wasn't an issue and it has become one later on. I think there are a few key points. I mean, we start mm. probably thinking from a toothy point of view at around 12. We yeah. start picking up and thinking, which way mm. is this patient mm. going to go? Is this something we're going to have to consider? Because at some point we, we like to straighten teeth. It's one mm. of the things we like to do. But we wouldn't necessarily push it at that age because actually you've got a young child there who wants to enjoy their life and get course, on with things. Yeah. Mm. So 15 is a, is a point where we need to be starting to think about decision making. But actually, if a patient says to us, I don't want to do this yet, I don't want to discuss it yet, they're not putting themselves at risk, they're not no. missing the, an opportunity, they can come back to mm -hmm. us. But the flip side of it is, for patients who really, really want to have it done, they want to get into the system as soon as they can, which is around 15. So that's why we start thinking about it, that sort of thing. And I think there's a point you're saying about, that's a surgery you can have at 
in a way mm. around those brackets but at any time mm. because sometimes we we can pick up on parental anxiety about mm. would that treatment not be free once the the mm. the you know our youngsters leave the pathway at 20 and actually we've had several questions around would we have to go and do it privately so there are questions around this that we can reassure families that there's no pressure in terms of when you have to get it from the system it's based on what you feel like and what is your need at this point in time um, in terms of when you want to, to have to have it so that's quite important that families remember mm. not to put pressure on their youngsters to have it done now um, because after that you're not under the pathway anymore mm. you come back as an adult definitely and I think that's really empowering for people to know because mm -hmm. it, as we've been mentioning it is a big decision to make yeah. and particularly you know if you're 15 years old you just may not quite be ready to make mm -hmm. make that decision mm -hmm. and I can imagine that could yeah. be incredibly frustrating for parents and yes. things yeah. well, as the well. The other thing to think is that sometimes this can potentially be the first surgery which our patient mm -hmm. will be consenting for themselves of that course. they're going to be yeah. signing for themselves mm -hmm. and it's a big one to go for yeah. it's, it's not like I'm going to come in and have a small something mm. you know my ear pierced or something mm. yeah it, it's not that this mm. is this is a big surgery so there's a we we have a lot of conversation around it it's not just come in make a decision on one day mm. we have multiple appointments and the amount that is necessary for each individual patient so if a patient has got more questions and they go away and they go away and think I need to ask more I want them to come back to me and ask more I don't want them to feel that they've got to make the decision on the information they've been given so far. There is always more opportunity to ask again, and that's really important in this process. Yeah. And I think, as you're saying, it's also a new step for them because yes. all the surgeries before were pretty much black and white in terms of you need this or you need that. Mm. And this one is, is the harder one because actually this one is that you don't need it, but you can have it. This is what it would do for you, but you, you can have it. And therefore, that's, that's a huge transition to, um, to make for the young people that at this point in time, where are they? So they have what they're feeling about themselves, but their mum might be feeling something, their dad might be feeling another thing, the friends might be, you know, giving other advice. Mm. And then that's really difficult. How do you make such a big decision um, if if you're not sure and actually the people around you have all different, you know, different perspectives? Definitely. Definitely. And I, I remember at, at that age, you know, myself and I had the same decision to make. And it's, you, you hear lots of conflicting things from different different angles and it's really hard to make that decision but I, th I think asking questions as you were saying is really important I used to have a notebook where I write Absolutely. things down yeah. and bring them to appointments yeah. um, which I found worked really really well for me uh, oh yeah young people it works for us section on your phone yeah, yeah. And you can yeah. because you can have something that pops you know you're on the train and you're somewhere you have oh I'd like to uh, to actually ask that and so you can pop it on the on the notes and you can uh, you can then come and we you know we don't mind you looking and saying these are the, the questions I, I had and Definitely. we welcome any question really really welcome yeah. any question mm. there's no silly questions I think that's really important yeah. The, the other thing is sometimes we'll get asked a question which is surprising and we're like, oh, never thought of that before. But then that feeds into the future of what we tell other patients. So any feedback that we get, anything around thought processes of how you make the decision and how you felt after the operation, any, any information like that is fantastic for us as well because it means we use it in our day-to-day -day practice. So the next patient that comes in, we can give them that back. So it's a constantly evolving process that the more conversation we have, the more we can give to our patients. Mm. I think at that age, it's really important because as you say, some 15-year-olds are not quite at that point where they feel com comfortable and confident yeah. to make that decision. But also 
making sure they're aware that it is not an absolute all or nothing. Mm. It's that if you yeah. don't have this, you can't have anything. Mm. Um, and we do have some patients where we just do some simple orthodontic work to improve aesthetics of their top front teeth. And, and for them, that at least that's, that's something and it takes the pressure off and mm. they come back later when they're a little bit older and perhaps they're in a different position and, and have different priorities of what they would like. Definitely, mm. definitely. Um, and now, this is kind of a question for ev- everyone. I'll start with you, Kareem, but definitely open it out, out to everybody. Um, you were mentioning before, obviously, you know, um, it is, is a lot to kind of, mm-hmm. and you, you were saying before about, you know, consenting to your first kind of procedure, and it, it's quite a big one. Um, obviously, we'll talk shortly about kind of what the process is once you say, you know, I think I might like to go for this. Um, but before we get there, what, what are some of the potential risks and side effects of this surgery? If I consider from a um, psychology, you know, how <laughs> for the surgical risks, um, if I consider from the psychology, I think the main risk, you know, the main question that our young people have is that, you know, once I do it, I do it. Would I, would I get the results that I want to get or that I believe I am going to get? So a lot of the work we do in preparing for the surgery is around expectations. Um, I think that's, that's the most important one because for some of them, when, for example, it's going to be a functional, so they, the appearance is not something that they would have a surgery for, but actually they are really, really um, struggling with how they bite or some of their talking, um, then we have to work with them is that the side effect is going to be your appearance is going to change and is preparing for the what-ifs, preparing about what what you know what would be the best what would be the worst um what would we have to see to be very um happy or very unhappy so i think from the psychological perspective i think it's the unknown i think that's the one that we we work um we work a lot on in terms of the unknown of course there's the surgery and tolerating the surgery young people that are considering um that surgery if they're in the teen years there's a lot of usual things that go on with a teenagehood as well. Uh, teenagehood is not the easiest time, and sometimes you can have some additional um, mental health, you know, sort of difficulties that are mainstream to anyone, not particular to cleft, but actually you can have anxiety by coming to um, hospital, you can have, um, you know, some um, depression, and those are the kind of thing that we work with the team. It doesn't stop you having the surgery, but it might increase, you know, how, you know, complex it's going to be for you, so we'll support you to go through that as a team um, and we don't want you know your anxiety to be heightened or your depression to be um, deepened so we we support with that so i would guess those are the the main um psychological you know risk we would see in terms of the, um, the surgery teeth legs or <laughs> surgery legs teeth legs teeth. <laughs> for a lot of patients they may have already had some orthodontic work or some work if they've had a bone graft beforehand or, or afterwards um, so some of it is to do with just being in the system for a long time, uh, prolonged treatments, which carries with it some additional risks, difficult to clean around braces, um, a, a perhaps slightly higher risk of getting problems like gum health problems and decay, things like that. So making sure you're well supported by your dentist. Um, as an orthodontist, we worry about shortening of roots. So when you're in treatment a long time, the root lengths can get a little bit shorter. And sometimes around a cleft site, the roots are slightly different shapes and sizes anyway. So we're, we're aware of that uh, and consciously making efforts to try to minimise risks. Um, from an orthodontic point of view, at the end of any treatment, whether you had jaw surgery or didn't, we talk about relapse, so teeth going back the way they came from 
things getting mm. misaligned again. So retainers are a huge part of brace treatment now uh, in a way that they weren't historically uh, and just making sure that people are aware that they're going to need to wear something for mm. us, please, um, to prevent teeth changing. Ah, the surgical <laughs> <laughs> So this, this is where I big them up but try and make them little at the same time. Um, it's a big procedure, it's a big treatment plan and when you put it all out there for a patient you can see that they, they feel that the pressure and they're like that's massive mm -hmm. but then when you put it in the context of how long they're going to be alive and you come back to a patient that's a bit further down the line and they go yeah it wasn't the easiest of things to do but actually I'm very happy I had it so I need to put it in that context before I start mm -hmm. talking about risks that I would say pretty much all the patients that come through will, will say hard but worth it mm -hmm. so that that's something to really bear in mind so when we think about it, there's, we've talked about length of treatment coming up to it. There's a, a short hospital stay. It's not a long hospital stay, actually. It's probably, for most patients, one to two nights. But I always say those first few days, that first two weeks, are hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah? And it's best to make friends with the, the sofa, the TV, <laughs> and whoever's looking after you, usually mum and dad or relatives or friends, because all you'll want to do is eat, sleep, eat, sleep, mm -hmm. maybe yeah. watch a bit of TV, but just take it really, really easy yeah. for that first two weeks and take your painkillers regularly because it's going to be achy and sore. Mm. Okay? You're going to be on a soft diet for six to eight weeks, which is not fun. And when we say soft, we mean proper, sloppy, no chewing type food. And this actually is quite tricky because mm, one, yeah. it doesn't taste as good. And secondly, when you're healing from an operation, any operation and particularly bony operations you you need more calories mm -hmm. you need to eat more to, to mm -hmm. recover and heal so you're struggling to eat but then you need to eat more so you're going to be tired and I would say have an expectation of being quite tired for the two months while that bone heals you're not going to be back to going up to the gym and doing all of that straight away you know you might get back mm -hmm. to work after two weeks depending on what you do if you're doing an office job or school you could get back to to that but if you're a carpet fitter or doing something really physical like working in a warehouse mm -hmm. you might need four or six weeks off so just yeah. bear that in mind um, and the other thing is sometimes I have to add some extra bone from the hip so if we do that it doesn't lengthen the recovery period but it just makes that recovery mm. a bit more intense yeah. if that makes yeah. sense they are you're gonna be sore so as I said regular painkillers but actually quite a few patients come back and say it wasn't quite as bad as they were expecting. Mm -hmm. And that's because there can be some numbness associated with this. So there are nerves that come out in the cheeks and um, into the lower jaw that will get bruised during the procedure. So that numbness in the top jaw particularly usually goes in the bottom jaw. It can be permanent or, or a small amount can be permanent. But we discuss that in detail around when we do the consent. It'll be swollen. Mm. So and that swelling starts over the first 48 hours and then it generally drops off. And hopefully by about two weeks, the only people who will know that you've had the surgery yourself and the people close to you because you can feel that you might be a bit, you're like, oh, this feels a bit different, mm -hmm. but someone looking at you wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. know. Okay. Change in appearance. Mm -hmm. That can be a big one. And actually our patients tend to cope with that really well. Mum and dad sometimes <laughs> don't, so that's just something to bear in mind, yeah. okay? Um, what else? It's an operation, so you can bleed a bit during the operation. 
so that again would make you very tired afterwards. In terms of complications specific to this, sometimes we, we use metal plates to fix the jaw and sometimes they need to be taken out later on. Not always, um, we leave them if they don't cause any problems. Um, the jaw can try and move back to where it came from. We've talked about tooth relapse. The same can happen with the jaws. So that means sometimes we use elastics afterwards to hold things and encourage things in the right direction until it's healed. And we also say, once you're, all your braces off, you must wear your retainers. And we say those retainers are for life. You know, mm -hmm. If you don't wear them for life, mm -hmm. you risk going back to where it came from. Um, with cleft patients, and this is specific to cleft as opposed to non-cleft patients, patients that have had surgery on their palate, so for a cleft palate, their speech may change with having jaw surgery. And what we do before we get into this pathway is we look at how well their palate works mm -hmm. so that we can have a discussion around if the speech changes, what can we do for it? And that leads me into thinking about what other, what other things may change. So with the appearance change, mm. speech change, we may need to do further operations. And then there's also a very tiny risk, and this is, you see it once in a blue moon, that things don't heal quite the way we want, and I have to go back in and do some more surgery to make it heal the way we want. Mm. It's very rare, but it's just mm. something that's important to, to think about. Mm. Mm. Anything else I'm missing? <laughs> There's other things will probably come out as we talk. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think those what ifs that you're saying, you know, it's like this is the panel, and in a way, when we when we think about surgery with the young people, we we almost want to prepare for that. What what if? How will you feel if actually after your surgery your speech has changed and you need further surgery? If you don't, you don't. But if you do, how would you feel? Mm. So that you are prepared for um, not going into the surgery thinking everything is going to be perfect mm. as I as I finish. Because that's you know that might be the case for most of the the young people, but it might not be the case for everyone. So we need to in the pre-work be ready for those what if what if mm -hmm. you know um, actually you thought it was going to change your life and it doesn't. It changed your profile. It doesn't change your life. Kind of ha be ready for those discussions so they're not a surprise at a mm. time where you already really yeah. you know drained for recovering. And I think mm. that's and one of the things I will say to my patients is we, we're focusing here on the jaw surgery, mm -hmm. but actually it's often part of a big treatment plan. And that treatment plan, from start to finish, mm -hmm. if you're going braces, jaw mm -hmm. surgery, then potential mm -hmm. follow-up surgery for speech, lip, nose, hole through to the nose, that can add another two years mm -hmm. on afterwards. So you can be looking at a four-year pathway mm -hmm. to get yeah. everything done. Yeah. Not all patients want that whole pathway mm. or need that mm. but it's just an awareness that this may be the path that they choose yeah. and I like to have that discussion with them beforehand so that they, they feel like they're moving along and things don't become a surprise afterwards. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long does the actual surgery take or does it really like d differ? It varies from patient yeah. to patient. It varies as to whether you're doing one jaw, two jaws, whether mm. you take bone from the hip. Yeah. Um, I personally have had a single jaw take me a couple of hours. Yeah. I've had a double jaw take me three, three and a half. The longest it would take me is probably about five hours. Mm. Um, different surgeons, different speeds as yeah. well. But I, I like to have a good half a day so that mm. there's no, so we're not rushing and we can just do it nice. Yeah. So yeah. It's. Um, it's not a short procedure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah.
Okay, thank you for that. Um, so this one is, um, next question is to you, Rachel. Yeah. Um, so when I have decided I would like to go through the surgery, there is usually a lot of preparation orthodontic work beforehand. What are the next steps once I've agreed to it? Yeah. So once uh, somebody is advised as they'd like to go ahead, um, we normally see them in the orthodontic department. We take some records, so dental models, so from impressions, uh, dental x-rays sometimes in addition to that, photographs, so we've got a baseline for planning. And then often it's, it's to begin with, for most patients, fixed braces, so top mm -hmm. and bottom fixed braces. Sometimes with orthodontic preparation, you have to think about making space to straighten the teeth. So for some patients, they need to have some dental extractions done. Um, they're usually carried out by your own dentist or your general dentist uh, shortly before we, we place our braces. Um, most patients need orthodontic preparation mm -hmm. to align the teeth first of all for aesthetic reasons, but just to, to move them individually and each jaw into the right place so that when Kamal moves the jaw they actually fit well together. Um, on average we're looking at maybe 18 to, to 24 months worth of preparation. Mm. Depends on if you've had some braces already, so if you've already had a little bit your teeth might be fairly straight already. Um, and coming to see us about every six to eight weeks, so it is a big commitment mm. um, and we the braces remain on um, before you know, before, during, and after. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot, a lot to do. Yeah. Sometimes also, if the patient's had a bone graft in the yeah. past to the front of their jaw, we have to top that up as well. Mm -hmm. So, but that doesn't lengthen the treatment. It can be done at some point within the orthodontic treatment, mm -hmm. but it does mean an extra stage of surgery. Yeah. And will I be like informed every step of the way of what what is going to happen as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, patients are. Uh, are part of the whole pathway, they're, they're sort of leading yeah. their pathway really from the yeah. point when they decide what, what they want. Yeah. Um, you get to know your orthodontist very well, um, <laughs> so you're nearly always on first name <laughs> basis. Um, and you see, you're you seeing someone really regularly over, over quite a long period of time, which is really nice. Mm. Um, at, at various points we, we take new records and see, do we think we're ready? Um, are we ready to go back to see Kalmar to talk about surgery? And at that point, we tend to all meet together, don't we, and, and mm -hmm. have a recap about, okay, mm -hmm. we think we're nearly there orthodontically, so what, let's go back to thinking, what do you want from your operation? Mm -hmm. um, what's your priority? Mm -hmm. Is it improving fullness in the cheeks? Is it changing chin position? So for males, females, different um, patient groups, they have different priorities. So you're, you're really a part of that decision-making mm -hmm. um, in terms of what we're going to perhaps plan for you for your operation. Mm -hmm. um, at that stage, it's a case of once you're on the waiting list, yeah, you'll be kept informed yeah. of when and, and hopefully have a fairly good idea when, when things will take mm -hmm. place. Um, but come to see us a lot, especially before surgery, so yeah, there are exactly. ample opportunities. A lot of patients and, will yeah. also see um, our psychology team. For Communication at this point is very important because what we can see is anxiety level rising. Yeah. Um, when you come next to a day to surgery, that you know might fall in exam because if you are, you know, exam or uni, um, we have some of our, uh, you know, young patients mm -hmm. that are really anxious about um, missing out on on some exams because it's going to be course, a surgery yeah. day. So communication is really important. When you're ready, you're ready, so you can't delay too long. But actually, you can delay enough to not be in the exam. So um, we have seen young patients that have um, taken a, a, a gap year because they find dealing with the anxiety of the surgery a bit hard. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, if you communicate with your team, this is something that we are going to take, you know, it's important to you. So we're going to take it seriously that we know it can't be around, you know, if you have your exams in May, 
it's best to plan for July, you know, so um, mm-hmm. I think we coordinate in terms of listening to you and anxious, you know, if you go to your surgery being very, very anxious about the disruption is going to lead to something very important, um, then it's not the best state of mind. So mm-hmm. it's something we're really trying to work hard with um, to make sure you know where you're at yeah. and you can communicate mm-hmm. with us things that are um, worrying. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess for that communication mm-hmm. is also really important mm-hmm. to you know, communicate with your university and, and employers yes. as well about what's going on. So yeah. I remember that yeah, um, when I had mine done, it was in third year of, of uni, yeah. um, which is a fairly busy time. Busy time. Um, but actually what I found was by having the conversation with the mm-hmm. uni, they were also able to, to offer support. support yeah. um, we, it's not unusual for us to help um, put all of it in writing for, for a patient, actually, if they'll say, you know, I want to give something to school or, or to university or to my employer. It, we quite often will collate a, a report, you know, explaining why they're having it, what they're having it for, mm-hmm. the fact that they'll need to come back regularly, sometimes for unplanned appointments as well, which is tricky um, with commitments, uh, and explain that they'll need some time off afterwards and, and, and mm-hmm. just make sure that people are aware that they will need perhaps reduced duties or different different tasks mm-hmm. to do when they come back. So mm-hmm. it's quite a common thing for us to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say the pressures when you are a returner adult are, are even greater sometimes because you might be the main brain winner for your family, mm-hmm. you might have childcare, you, you know, there's a lot of additional things that might add up um, and that we need to consider when we are supporting returner adults um, in terms of what kind of stress level it can um, it can generate for, um, you know, for a, for a person that has those commitments. You know, Absolutely. there are numerous appointments for us in our service, so I don't know how it works in other service, but if you are going to have the orthodontic work for your jaw surgery, you need to come to here. And mm-hmm. that means that can mean two hours to come here and two hours. So you're losing half a day to come mm-hmm. to an appointment. Yeah. That's part of you know what needs to be done, but we need to be, you know, to really communicate on that and share about this is going to be okay or this is going to be very tricky or I might need my appointments later in the day because I, you know. So that's the mm. kind of things that particularly with adult returners we need to, we, we're always considering, um, you know, mm. what is the family situation, what are the, the impact, you know, the impact on, on life, on work, on, on money because they are serious matters. Certainly. Mm. I know you guys have said um, if I do have any questions that I can come to you at any point but what if I have decided that I don't want to have the surgery and what if it's like the day before, am I still able to kind of make that See, that that's the point where I pick up the phone and go, Cree, <laughs> I need your help. <laughs> so, for it does I, happen. It, it does happen, yeah. yeah. And I think if a patient the day before their surgery suddenly went, I don't want mm. this, I suspect that's probably around anxiety. Yeah. It's not the actual that they've really mm-hmm. changed their mm-hmm. mind about what they want, it's just they're faced with mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. is big mm-hmm. and they're going, I'm not sure I can go through it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's yes. where. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I would say, you know, hopefully there's enough communication so that we would capture if someone actually wasn't mm-hmm. quite so sure follow the process and then when well actually no I, I now I see what it entails I don't want to do to do it um, we haven't mentioned smoking is an issue as well so you cannot you have to stay away from smoking the entire time and sometimes you find that people might, might have life stresses and they had stopped they take back and they say I need a pause in all that hopefully you're not near the time where you're having the surgery near yeah. the surgery as Carol say it's more likely to be anxiety so we mm. might have then a delay of a couple of months so we have the time to think about what, what it is, what it is that's going on for you at this point in time that 
that thing you've been working on for two and a half years mm. suddenly as you're coming to the you know to the ward or the evening before it's too much and we are we've really had anyone do that though no we? you would have we would have cancellations a few weeks before we had some but yeah. actually then you can it makes sense once you sit down and think with the patient it makes sense why was it too much at that time mm. and usually with a bit of um, work and strategies around anxiety and communication with the team the next schedule is actually going ahead um, so it, it's, it's okay it's okay to have this realization it's gonna happen mm. it is a bit like you waited 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 for something and then actually it's the day you jump and that's mm. an enormous yeah. thing to um, to do and there might be various factor um, why is too much on, on at that point in time um, so normally we we know the team jump in. We have some you know strategies and sessions, and then we can proceed. Mm -hmm. We should be able as a team normally to pick up who is having is not so sure is having a change of mind as the process um, happens. And family circumstances change as well. I think it's a time in life where these young people or young adults um, things happen. So there might, there might be unexpected things that are going on and they, they might need to halt. Um, and hopefully it's more, you know, towards the, the beginning or they made a decision and then it's like, well, but actually I, I, I'm now taking a gap year and I want to travel the world. And mm -hmm. it's like, that doesn't quite fit. So mm -hmm. should we delay? Um, so it's kind of those discussions, you know, it's not because you made a decision at 15 for something you're going to start when you're 16 or 17, that actually you realize, well, I'm, I'm going a different way than what I thought. So we might have some... Um, yeah. I would say one of the conversations I do have with patients is about how much they want mm -hmm. treatment. Yeah. And if I have a patient saying, I'm not sure, mm. do you think I should have it done? Mm. My answer is, if you're not sure, no, mm. you shouldn't have it done. Because it's a big commitment. Yeah. And if you go into it not feeling, mm -hmm. not understanding and not really wanting it, it's actually a very difficult commitment. Mm -hmm. And that's when we, we would have a problem mm -hmm. nearer the time where someone goes, actually, I'm not sure about mm -hmm. this. So I would rather a patient comes and has the conversations early and we put all the mm -hmm. options out there. And then if they're not sure, that's fine. We put it on hold before mm -hmm. we do anything mm -hmm. that we can't change mm -hmm. or would be problematic to change. Um, and usually that means we don't tend to have that many patients changing their mm. minds within treatment once they've started their mm. orthodontics. Mm. They, they usually have their pause before we get the braces mm. on. Yeah. I think if you're in the course of your orthodontic preparation, um, what we inadvertently do is we make the, the bite a little bit worse before the operation yeah. can make it better. Um, so patients will find that their, their bite gets even greater or larger. So it's a huge thing when they turn, turn around and, and say, actually, I'm, I'm rethinking. Um, it doesn't mean that they can't reconsider treatment later. Mm -hmm. We do get patients sometimes mm -hmm. who, for various reasons, yeah. take a break, take a pause. And we take braces off and we give you retainers and mm -hmm. we hold things and wait and see. And, and some patients accept and some patients come back later mm -hmm. and say, actually, I have thought about it. I would like to resume treatment. Mm -hmm. And we spend lots of time talking to them. About and I would say the patients that sometimes find it the hardest to, uh, you know, to really want it, is the patients that are coming because they, they don't have a complaint around their, pro, you know, their profile or their their jaw. They want their nose changed, for example, or something on the lip, and and then they come, they come for some th something, and then. In order to achieve best results, it looks like the jaw, you know, yeah. improvement of the jaw would be um, would be advisable. 
And then it's this huge, you know, bomb. It's like, okay, you won that, but we're going to offer three years of that before. Mm -hmm. That's that's a, mm. you know, that's a huge. I mean, we've seen some fifteen-year-old going, you know, I just want, you know, thought maybe in the future this, yeah. and then you end up having this three-year pathway of to course, all that. You, you know that. It's huge in deciding. It's really huge when that wasn't what you came for. The ones that come and say, My, I really can't chew my sandwich, usually you would have less difficulties because they know exactly yeah. why, mm. what they want mm. to change. But when you came for something else, and then you are offered the way to there is this long thing that is going to take, you know, a, two years or three years of your life, that's a different adjustment. And that's when we can have a longer decision making mm. around, um, around the dual surgery and change of mind sometimes. Yeah. And then, so this next question is for um, Camwell and Alpha. Um, so are surgeons able to tell or show me what I will look like after I have the surgery done? <laughs> there is software available mm -hmm. that we use for mm -hmm. patients across the board um, that can, in a combination between photographs and x-rays, either in 2D or 3D, can show changes. However, it's a big however mm. for cleft patients. Yeah. That modelling, the, the, the way that the computers work it out, is based on non-cleft patients. So that data isn't really there for patients who've had a cleft. And if you've got a patient who's got scarring in their lip, mm. it, it reacts differently in every single patient. So I have to be honest, I don't really like doing before and after modelling for a particular patient mm. and saying this is what you'll look like afterwards because I can't guarantee that. Mm. Um, I can give an idea, but I can't guarantee it. What I would rather do is show before and afters of other patients when mm. they've agreed to it yeah. because it, you can show these are the changes we can make and they're real. Um, so there is an element of trust I suppose in, in what we do that we know we're going to get changes and we, we should get good changes but the actual predictability of what happens with the soft tissues is difficult. Mm, yeah. yeah pretty similar to what Karen was saying yeah. they weren't able to actually show the before and after of me but they directed me to the BRS a website the British mm. Orthodontic Society so mm. you know, they've got a great article on what jaw surgery is what it entails and gives examples of uh, other patients, uh, obviously who are non-cleft, who have actually gone through this situation mm -hmm. as well. So you're actually able to see imagery on the website of before and after. Yeah. So I think even that is pretty much uh, mm. enough because that kind of highlights what the treatment is and what you could potentially look like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in answer to your question for a cleft patient, mm. they, they can't uh, mm. show it. There's certain things we can perhaps predict certain patients that we might expect you move the top jaw forward sometimes the tip of the nose elevates a little bit and for a lot of patients mm -hmm. that's a good thing mm -hmm. um, so there are uh, certain yeah. jaw movements that we can give you a good idea of what you might expect change wise for you um, but exact specific outcome this is what you're going to get yeah. it's, it's very very challenging yeah i think thinking around like we we're just talking about nose nose mm -hmm. is actually one of the or patient dissatisfaction with how their nose looks is often one of the leaders into mm -hmm. jaw surgery that they'll come to me and say I don't like my nose and I'll go okay I can change your nose but your top jaw is small so mm. your nose will never quite be in the correct position so to get a more ideal position this is what we do but when I do the jaw surgery I'm moving effectively 
I think of it like a house mm. where the the jaw is like the walls of the house and the nose is like the roof of the house. If you move the walls, the roof is going to move as well. Mm. Um, and that's what happens with the nose. So you always get a change in the nose with the jaw surgery. And that can be some widening. It can be that the tip will come up and that can be beneficial. But in some patients, the tip doesn't move, but mm. everything else does. So actually the nose becomes flatter. And I can't predict that before the surgery. Yeah. So what I will say around nose is the nose will change. Is it going to be a good change or a bad change? I can't say. Mm -hmm. However, what I can say is that if you don't like it, I can offer you something further. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were talking about, yeah. that sometimes you, you have an extra step of surgery. And I think psychologically that's really important to prepare for, because if all started was the idea you had about how you want your nose to look like, it might be such a long time before mm -hmm. this happens. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and even when you have the surgery, it might get in a direction, you know, even further away from what you like yes. before you can get, you know, six months at least later, your, your nose surgery. So if you think about life events, I think in terms of keeping your mood up and yeah. getting, mm. you know, keeping yeah. motivated towards the surgery, it can be a lot of work. Mm. It can be a lot of work and you can have really a, a, a journey to your, yeah. your nose surgery that can be like that, you know, mm. and when you had your jaw surgery and you saw and you, you look and you still, you know, not what exactly you wanted, you drained, you can have days that are going to be, you know, a bit low. That's part of the of the um, you know journey as well to have you know to have this kind of up and down um, towards what you um, what you wanted and I think that's important to be prepared for it. Mm. I think it's sometimes from my point of view it's slightly easier if I've got a patient that's coming in and saying I know I want yes. nose surgery. Mm. We can prepare for that in the plan. I know I'm going to see them at five or six mm -hmm. months after their osteotomy and go right. What's mm -hmm. next for you then? Mm -hmm. The ones that maybe are a little trickier mm. are the ones that weren't sure which way they were going to go. And then they come back and say, actually, I don't like my nose. Mm. And that can sometimes give a little bit of a delay mm. in when mm. they get their surgery. Mm. But there has to be choice mm -hmm. that, yeah. you know, and also it's always good to wait a little time to let everything bed in mm. and see how they feel about themselves mm. as well. Because yeah. so. mm. we have to, in a way to remember that none of that surgery would happen if it wasn't in response to a dissatisfaction or a complaint yeah. that the patient had yeah. so we we know we go, there is something objective but that something objective hasn't got to be corrected it hasn't got to yeah. so it's only is if there's an objective from the patient if the yeah. patient has a name that i want to change this and therefore you're hanging on to i want to change this what happens when you have a three-year delay in changing this or if at the end this is not what is exactly expected how we how we tolerate that how we work around that i think that also leads into something else that's really important that if a patient says to me, what would you change? Mm -hmm. I actually feel quite uncomfortable mm -hmm. about that mm -hmm. because my ideas of beauty yeah. or mm -hmm. averageness or what I like could be very different mm -hmm. to what the patient likes. Yeah. So when a patient actually comes to me and says, these are the things I don't like or I want to know like my mother's or mm -hmm. I, and they're quite specific about things, it makes it a lot easier for me because that's what I aim to change. Yeah. Whereas if someone comes to me and just gives me a global, I don't like it, the problem there is I can do it to how I like it, mm -hmm. but whether that matches what the patient mm -hmm. wants is, is different. Yeah. So that conversation around specifics is really important. Mm -hmm. And also that patients shouldn't be scared to ask for what they want because 
I've, this is a line mm. I get quite a bit. Mm. Oh, I don't like this, but I know nothing can be done. And it's like, hold it. <laughs> Come to me, ask me, yeah. because you might be surprised. I might be able to say, yes, actually, I can do something with mm. like that. Sometimes I will say, no, I can't really do that for you. Mm. Or actually, I can't see mm. what the problem is. So in my eye, I can't see it, so I can't change it. But frequently, they'll come and ask me, and I'll say, yes, I can do that, but I may need to do this, this, and this first, or I may need to wait a year or two. So the asking the question is very important. Yeah, and I think for the teams, it's almost, a tr I would say, a tricky balance sometimes, yeah. because, as you say, you wonder what a certain patient would like to change, but there are other patients that, 15 years of the time where we see everyone, there are certain patients that are going to come, and you know exactly what you could change, you know exactly mm. all the things yes. that you could do. Yeah. But actually, that patient is coming and saying, I'm so happy, I'm so happy with everything, and everything is fine. And I think we often have debates as a team about, at that point in time, do you tell them, it's great, you know, really good that you're happy, you know, if ever that's to change, you know, to change or if you have these other kind of things I could do. It's really hard to, to have that balance between, do you feel you're not informing the patient about what they could have what done, what's available, are. but actually do you want to give them those options when they're telling you life is perfect and mm. I'm so happy? Mm. I think it's a real hard balance and I think the teams are almost we continuously working at it. Um, we, I don't think we found the right recipe yet about what we mention, what we say, what we don't say, between raising alert to something that the patient wasn't really you know, aware of or doesn't matter, or feeling that we haven't them, given them the mm. appropriate information. Mm. I think we see, we're, still, we're still sitting yeah. you know, somewhere. <laughs> it's a tricky one. It's, it's a yeah, very it's fluid really, conversation, yeah. um, which can be very much driven by the patient. Yeah. So, like you said, your notebook, where you write your questions, mm -hmm. is really important because mm -hmm. it, sometimes you come in here and if we've got a big clinic with lots of different professionals and it can be quite intimidating. So having that notebook and that reminder and saying, actually, I wanted to ask this mm -hmm. or this is what I don't like, mm -hmm. is really helpful. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. Now, can you kind of walk us through what happens on the day of surgery? Because as we were saying, you know, this may well be the first kind of operation someone goes for as, yeah. as an adult yeah. and so it could be a little bit different to, to their memory as, as a child. Um, I think it, it will vary slightly from hospital to hospital. We have moved I think as a whole in the NHS to coming in on the day of surgery rather than the night before. The big change for most patients is they're going to be on an adult mm. ward mm. rather than a children's ward. Occasionally we can sneak the odd patient into the children's ward into a side room, but that's unusual. And we uh, need base as well. Hmm? Yeah, need, it would be based on their yeah, needs, their particular needs. Yeah, so, and anyone who's over 18, we definitely can't do that. So come in on the day of surgery, starved, so that means nothing to eat or drink for six hours before the anticipated time of surgery. Come to theatre, well they see the surgeon on the day, we always have a last minute mm -hmm. chat, confirm everything's okay see the anaesthetist, then they'll go to theatre, be anaesthetised, go to sleep, have the surgery, and then when they wake up it will probably be in recovery. Once they're in recovery, I would usually go and visit my patient in recovery, see how they're doing, and then if they've brought parents with them or someone with them, we would usually call them to come to recovery to see the patient and make sure everything's okay. One of the things I usually ask my patient at the beginning of the day is, do you want me to discuss your operation and your care with your family? Is this something you're happy for me to do? And the reason I ask that is most people want to know what's happened. Um, and once they've woken up from a big operation, 
they may have a chat with me and it may seem like they can remember everything, but the next day they can't. Some patients will remember absolutely every single word you say, some won't. So I think it's important that they have another source of information that's there with them that can say, yes, I've spoken to the surgeon, it, it was okay, or this was a bit unusual, or these are the things that were done. But it's to give them reassurance that someone else has that information rather than mm. just relying on the staff. Because actually, at the end of the day, I'm going to go home overnight. Mm. So I may not be there to be able to have that conversation mm. with them when they're a bit more awake. So it's important that that information gets to them in a nice way. So that's why I like to talk to parents mm. as well. That's a really important thing you're mentioning is the fact that during that process, if the process starts at 15 and ends when you're 19, during that process you would have gone from being the communication and the phone calls and the letters are going to parents because the parents are your parents and guardian. And in the meantime, you become then your medically mm. responsible and suddenly when the team calls or the parent call, we can't exchange. We mm. have to have consent from the young person mm -hmm. to be able to yeah. talk to the parents. Mm -hmm. Some parents find that very, very, very difficult because they kind of lose this, this right mm -hmm. to knowledge or this right to contact at the time where their, their child is going through one of the surgery, which is one of the you know, yeah. most major surgery. Mm -hmm. So that's really important what you're saying in terms of preparing that and having that discussion in advance. Because on the contrary, you have some youngsters that will not want, you know, in terms of how families are working, will not want anything shared with their, their parents. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they can have, you know, the, the control over their medical um, discussions, they, they come by themselves or they want that by themselves. Mm -hmm. You really have to tailor it to the, yeah. um, to the family. It's a very interesting transition time, yeah. generally, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's important to have discussions around that. Mm -hmm. So, But then, yes, so recovery, then back to the ward. Mm -hmm. and as I said, usually the first night, sleep, drink water, sleep, maybe watch a bit of telly if you're really awake, which is unusual. And then next day I'm usually like, right, up and out, <laughs> come on, out of bed, um, have something to eat, have something to drink, have you been to the loo? Mm. You know, the, those are sort of the, the standard after you've had an operation type thing. Yeah. And like I said, some patients do really well and they want to go home the next day home is a nice place to recover mm. yeah. but some patients need to stay in a bit longer they need a bit more pain control or maybe they're struggling with their eating and drinking and we just have to sort of tailor it to that mm. individual and that's fine that, and you know mm. I I tend to do my operating on a Friday so hopefully I get my patients home on a Saturday but if they don't sometimes we'll keep them on Monday because then they come back to see our orthodontist within a few days mm -hmm. of surgery so rather than sending them away when they're feeling tired and yeah, then bringing them back for a, yeah. you know for a long drive back in we say fine just stay, stay. it's mm -hmm. a bit easier mm -hmm. so then the next step would they come and see the orthodontist yeah. after they've been discharged to see how the bite is and mm -hmm. and what what's just the next steps yeah. Sometimes we'll take some dental x-rays, um, but we're really looking to see have we got that bite we're expecting. Usually we've got feedback from our surgeon about how it all went and, and, and that they were happy with how uh, their surgery went. Often for patients we'll use um, orthodontic elastics to help guide that new bite uh, and, and show patients what, what to expect and, and do a lot of TLC and, and how to look after things and, and what to eat and, and how to care for them out. I mean, my memory of it was a, it was a fairly busy first few days. You know, seeing lots of different different people, yeah. um, lots of stuff broken, lots of broken sleep as well. <laughs> um, 
But, but yeah, obviously, Arthur, you've been through that's, this yeah, more recently. Yeah, it doesn't match what you've experienced. So, yeah, yeah, can, can yeah. you tell us kind of what the first few days in the hospital and, and at home were like for you? Yeah, so obviously I came in on the Thursday, had the operation, got discharged on the Saturday, so it was a pretty quick turnaround. Um, in terms of the procedure, yeah, I remember when I woke up, you know, I was in my room, felt slightly a bit delirious and overwhelmed mm -hmm. by what's going on, but that only lasted for a short while. Um, and obviously I remember there was a lot of soreness, and uh, I think my sister and my mum were with me, and the first question I asked them, I go, look, could you just, just bring a mirror? Yeah. <laughs> I actually want to see myself at straight away. And nothing else came to my mind, you know, in terms of, I just said, just show me a mirror. But the thing is, I couldn't really speak because obviously, so I, so luckily there was a notepad and I just kind of wrote it down. But I felt so much fatigue that by the time I actually finished writing down what I did, I slightly just fell back asleep again and I kind of woke up. And they were like, okay, so then I think that was the first question that came to mind. In terms of ongoing kind of, uh, you know, day-to-day -day activities, so when I was in hospital, they also gave, gave me painkillers on a regular basis and uh, antibiotics as well, because obviously when there's a lot of scarring, you need to prevent the risk of infection. Um, and in terms of diets, we talked about soft diets. Um, obviously, uh, was unable to kind of chew, mm -hmm. so uh, forceps, which are like mm -hmm. really great drinks, and they kind of gave that to me. So I was just kind of <laughs> drinking on that pretty yeah. much for the whole day. And those, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's all bring it back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they're really, yeah. really good. Do, do you need the with cream? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a good bringing you back. <laughs> they're like a whole meal replacement. Yeah. Aren't yes. they? So you're getting lots of calories, really high calories, because you know for you, we don't want you to be chewing at that stage. So yeah, and I remember like during lunch. I mean, you, you know, you get the person coming, they're like, "Would you like anything for lunch?" And they kind of gave you know, there was soup on the menu, but even with that I was struggling. Yeah, I just wasn't able to do it. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, suddenly I got home and then I had this cooling mask, which was given by Hyrotherm, and that's uh, Professor Hayes, who's the person who actually performed mm -hmm. the surgery on me. It was something that he was crying out for his patient, and he said it's a really good device. Um, so I actually started utilising it um, during my sleep, mm -hmm. so when I need to go to sleep, put the mask on. It was comfortable mm -hmm. as well, it didn't really irritate. Um, and it's a cooling mask, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. a cooling mask, so it kind of helps with the swelling. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, kind of uh, first week or so, it was just pretty much you know, soft diet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of spending, you know, kind of how to utilise your time is pretty difficult, but kind of, you know, watching mm -hmm. television. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the staying active mm -hmm. on mobile was the the take-home message for me, because the nurse who actually first admitted me in, who actually performed all the general kind of checkups and everything, uh, he could say, look, you need to ensure post-surgery if you can. Obviously, you need to rest and everything, but just try and get up on your feet as soon as possible, yeah. mm -hmm. because uh, you know you're already going to be in such a kind of low state anyway. So mm -hmm. sitting on your yeah. couch or that won't help either. Yeah. So kind of help me with mm -hmm. my recovery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know we've spoken about it a fair, a fair bit, and you've mentioned it there as well, but that tiredness element, not to be underestimated, really, because, mm -hmm. you know, I remember as well, like, people would come and see me in the hospital, and I'd start talking to me, and I'd just doze, doze off. And yes. it's like, you know, you, you feel, you, you worry, you've been really rude, and, it's like, and you've not got the normal facial expression either that you can, can give back to people, and it's, mm -hmm. yeah. I don't think I've quite experienced anything quite 
like that kind of tiredness that I just could not power through. Mm. You know? yeah. I think it's something that actually, as a medical team, it's very easy for us to underestimate, mm -hmm. which is how difficult, how, what is recovery like? Mm -hmm. And it's, you, you, like you said, you, you just get fatigued and your energy requirements are higher. And even if you are eating more, it still doesn't quite break mm -hmm. through that mm -hmm. need to rest and sleep, but then you have to balance it against, actually, you've got to be a little mm -hmm. bit mobile to, to keep yourself well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you've just, it's about being realistic that your ability to do things will be reduced mm -hmm. for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And that's why the, the care, being cared for, you know, you talk about your sister and your mum being there, so I don't know if you returned to, you know, to the home where you were your mum and sister, but yeah. actually that's the big thing with adult. At that point in time, you need to be cared for. You know, so you need to have people around that are going to bring, you know, be there and the soft, you know, soft drinks and the painkillers help, you know, if you need more. So you need really to be in an environment that you're going to have some support in. That's so right. therefore, yeah. the young people um, still quite naturally, most of them, but not all, uh, would have that. When you're an adult, you know, and you're the one who care for yourself, um, that can be a trickier, a trickier recovery because you don't want to go and prepare something, you know, yummy and smash you know, and mush it and do all of that. It's much nicer to be cared for. So yeah. sometimes that is something that we we have to think in advance about how is that going to happen? Who who's are you going? Look who's you. going to look mm -hmm. after you? Because the concept of being looked after might not be as easy as you know when you reach a certain um, certain age. Mm -hmm. So that's something we need to think about because that time is really crucial. The recovery time is really crucial definitely definitely and, and what sort of follow-up care you know will people receive from the cleft team after the surgery so we all tend to meet with the way we work at here as you'll see the orthodontic team um, usually the following the either the following day um, or the couple of days later if you've had your operation on the Friday um, and we work so closely together if, if there's anything that we're perhaps concerned about well, you would immediately have some contact with your surgeon um, so you will, as your orthodontist will be seeing you regularly maybe first few weeks every week every other week um, and then you're back into sort of normal orthodontic adjustment intervals you'll normally have an opportunity to see the yeah I'll see, see usually a couple of weeks in about six weeks in and then that gets us through what I think of as the acute healing stage. Mm. And then after that, we move back into finishing the orthodontics. And then I see again at around six months, which is the, so what next stage? <laughs> is there anything next? You know, um, and then we review again at a year and two years just to see if everything's stable. So, but the main bulk of the, the appointments are in that first sort of six to eight weeks after mm -hmm. the surgery. And actually we would encourage that if there's any concerns or worries that rather than leaving it, you phone us and you come back to us. Yeah. And I think, you know, that that's really useful information and what we've been, been speaking about is just asking yes. asking those questions. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is about all we've got time for on the, yep. the panel discussion um, this month. But I think the, the key thing, that there is a lot more, obviously, that yeah. could be discussed yeah. because it is a big topic, as we've been yeah. saying. It, it can be quite a lengthy pathway, so just keep yeah. asking questions as, as you go, making sure that you've got the right expectation mm -hmm. of what's about to happen. Yeah. I think the other thing is just in terms of general ortho, um, resources, as Athar mentioned, um, there is the British Orthodontic Society website, and it's your jaw surgery. Yeah, your jaw <laughs> surgery. Yeah. That section is specifically for patients, so it's got patient stories on it, it's got before and afters. There's an area about eating and drinking, what you can, so diet sheets, things like that. So that's actually a really good resource that a patient can just access directly themselves. 
um, if they've got any quick things that mm. they want to know. Well, we recommend that their families and their carers will look at it as well because there's a video diary of a young man who's had this operation and you can see him from day naught all the way through those sort of six weeks recovery and you can see how initially quite swollen and it gets better and better mm. so mm. it's so important for your carers mm. to have an idea of what to expect and right. yeah. I guess you took a bit of while time to get used to sort of seeing the change and, mm. and, and recovery so it's yes. a brilliant resource. Mm. Certainly and we'll make sure to put all those those links that we've, yeah. we've mentioned into the, the links yeah. for this yeah, podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, that, as I say, that is all we've got, got time for. We hope that um, everybody at home who's been listening or watching this um, has found this discussion to be helpful um, in helping you to make that important but very tricky decision about whether or not to have automatic surgery. Um, remember, of course, that you can access more information and listen again to this and other panel discussions on our website at www.clapper.com forward slash adult services project. If this discussion has made you wish to seek support and you're not currently under the care of a CLEF team, please do contact your QP and request a referral to the CLEF team. Um, you will find details of the local CLEF team on our website. And alternatively, if you are already being seen by your CLEF team, do feel free to talk to them about the content of this panel discussion and any questions that you may have. Um, I would like to thank very much our panellists, Camwell, Rachel, Arthur and Karim for joining us for today's discussion, as well as a big thank you to you at home for joining us as well. Make sure to join Nikki and myself again next month where we'll be in London helping you through the highs and lows of the festive period in our Christmas special. <laughs> but until then, thanks again to our, our guests and to you at home. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. We want to know what you thought of the programme so we can make it even better. If you found this programme interesting, please make sure that you subscribe to our podcast. Our next podcast and video is coming up at the end of next month. Check out www.clapper.com slash cleftalk to find out what we'll be talking about next. You can also watch this and other panel discussions again on our website. And we want your questions to take to the panel. So visit our panel discussion page on our website to submit your questions. You also can check out everything we're up to with the Adult Services Project, including a list of our upcoming programmes and events at www.clapper.com slash adult services project and finally don't forget you can also follow us on twitter and facebook we look forward to seeing you again soon bye for now bye